Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Actively Speaking. You know, we talk about this podcast as being about the issues regarding capital markets from the perspective of an active manager. And and the last 18 months have been a very interesting time for active managers. And I think for people who don't do this themselves, you know, who are not portfolio managers themselves, they often wonder, you know, what goes through the minds of a portfolio manager during a time like COVID where things, something very unexpected comes along and markets uh, are sort of thrown into turmoil. And how does a portfolio manager react? We thought this would be a, a really good kind of case study at this point, 18 months into this pandemic, to talk to one of our portfolio managers about what's gone on in the portfolio and, and how he has approached the task of managing through this pandemic over the last 18 months. So I am joined today by David Sino, who is the lead portfolio manager on Epic's Quality Capital Reinvestment Strategies. On, on which I am actually a co-portfolio manager. So uh, welcome, David. Happy to be here, Steve. So uh, l- let's cast our minds back 18 months ago, March of 2020. And, you know, this news comes along. It breaks over the course of a few weeks. I remember, you know, traveling in early, late January, early February of last year and, you know, being very aware. I was in Europe and being very aware of people wearing masks in, in the airports and so forth at that time. But it hadn't really hit the U.S. in full force yet. And Suddenly it did. And everybody, you know, mid-March, we all suddenly started working from home and it was going to be two weeks to slow the spread. You know, that was the thinking at the time. So try to put yourself back in in what you were thinking at that time and give us a sense of how did you react to this? And people, I think, often feel, again, who aren't used to doing this on a day-to-day basis that, you know, you just, oh, you react dramatically. You make all sorts of buy and sell decisions because you know what's going to happen. But of course, that's not really the way it is. So tell us, you know, what it was like in March of 2020 for you. Sure. Thanks, Steve. So as you know, Steve, and, and for the benefit of our listeners, our strategy invests in companies that have a sustainable long-term competitive advantage, which gives them sustainably high returns on capital. Those principles are timeless through market cycles, through bull markets, through bear markets. We're still looking at the same types of companies. And if we do our jobs and judge correctly that these moats are durable, whatever might happen in the market won't necessarily cause us to react. And I'm glad you used that word because that is something that we don't do. So looking back to March 2020, when the pandemic first hit, I think it was the worst month for benchmark returns that that I can remember. I think the benchmark MSCI index was down 12 or 13% just for the month. And it felt a lot like September of 2008, when the world seemed to be imploding, AIG, Lehman Brothers, Fannie and Freddie, Merrill Lynch, et cetera. So in the case of our strategy, we did not trade all that much. We asked ourselves a simple question, that is, how much does the pandemic structurally change the industries and the competitive advantages we think we've identified through our fundamental research process? And the answer, far more often than not, was nothing has changed. And I don't say that lightly because the world has certainly changed in in many ways as a result of the pandemic. But the competitive advantages, the physical assets, the moats around companies' businesses were not breached by and large, by the pandemic. In fact, in, in many cases, uh, companies that we own, the, those competitive advantages were surfaced and they were emphasized and intensified through the course of the pandemic. So 
with some exceptions in travel-related sectors where we concluded that for the intermediate future, at least, for example, business travel wouldn't come back to prior levels anytime soon. Consumer travel, less of an impact, but certain uh, hospitality sectors would have been the wrong decision just to do something because the world is in a flux. That's not how we run the strategy. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm reminded of a couple of things from my own experience. You know, 30 years ago, back in 1991, I think it was, this was after the fall of the Soviet Union. And Boris Yeltsin was, I believe, uh, president of Russia. And there was an attempt by a bunch of, uh, you know, sort of the hardline communist old guard to take over again. And there was that famous picture of Yeltsin standing on the tank in Red Square. I'm pretty sure that was the summer of 91. And you know, I think markets reacted quite negatively when that happened. There was a sort of a lurch downward of six or seven percent, I believe, in a very short space of time. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, wait a minute, at the time, the company now known, for example, as uh, Altria, I think, uh, was still known as Philip Morris back then. And I just remember thinking explicitly about them because, you know, they also owned at that time, uh, you know, Miller Beer and, and Marlboro cigarettes. And I was just thinking, how is this going to affect the amount of Marlboro cigarettes and Miller beer that they're selling? It's probably not going to have much impact. Why should markets just be lurching downward in reaction to this? And I think that's always, I've found helpful to keep that kind of thing in mind, that people often do think that these sorts of things should, they, they just sort of panic, which is understandable because there's a lot of uncertainty. That There's always uncertainty in markets. That's a point I always like to make. There's never certainty. But at times, the level of uncertainty ramps up and people sometimes just want to get out of risky assets. But, you know, if you kind of think about it and say, well, how is this really going to affect the, like you say, the competitive advantages of some of the businesses and the cap rate portfolios? It's probably not. The other point you make about, you know, the pressure to do something. I remember also in the, in the 1990s, I was managing Japanese equities and used to go to Japan, you know, once or twice a year, just on research trips. And I always felt when you came back, there was sort of an unspoken pressure to do something. Well, you were just there. So naturally, you should be doing something, either raising or lowering the portfolio's weight in Japan. This was part of a broader non-U.S. portfolio. And one of the points you've made to me uh, offline on before this conversation was, you know, doing nothing is still an active decision. You know, just because something has happened doesn't mean you have to react. That choosing to not react is, in fact, an active decision. And so it sounds like, you know, in most cases, what we did in this portfolio was an active decision of choosing not to change the portfolio. That's a fair statement. It's not to discount what happened in, in the market. And uh, as I think back, I was not standing on a tank. I was sitting in my, in my basement at a table <laughs> with a dining room chair. But it's fair to say that the future free cash flows of the business become more uncertain, as we certainly haven't had anything like this happen in our lifetimes. So the level of uncertainty went up. When the level of uncertainty goes up, the equity risk premium should go up and stock prices should go down. That's a short-term reaction anyway, but I found that some of the worst decisions that you make are emotional ones in the market. And again, in, in hindsight, I think we chose the correct course. Yeah, that's another good point about, about hindsight. I mean, I, as I mentioned earlier, people, I think from the outside looking into a portfolio management, uh, underestimate that level of uncertainty about the future. We know now, and, and there is this hindsight bias. Okay, so 18 months later, we've seen how things played out, but you know, putting yourself back in the shoes of February, March, April 2020, People really had no clue that it was going to turn out this particular way. This was obviously one of the options of how it could turn out, but there were many options of how this could turn out and things that are always obvious in hindsight. And people think they should have been obvious in anticipation. You should have been able to anticipate this, that it was that obvious, but it, it's almost never the case that it was in fact obvious in advance. It's always obvious after the fact. 
So you say that by and large, we did not do much, but that there were some names and you mentioned some travel names. So what names did we buy or sell uh, in reaction to the early months of the pandemic? Sure. So, so the pair I'd like to mention to you are, are both airlines. So one is Southwest, one is Alaska. Uh, we decided to hold on to our Southwest and e- even add to the position. While the flip side of that, we sold our Alaska Air position. Uh, now, contrasting the two, both very similar in terms of the level of returns on capital they generated. Returns on capital is a very important metric for us. And it, it was also ingrained in management compensation policy. Managers were rewarded for earning adequate or, or very good, I should say, uh, more than adequate returns on capital. Now, I mentioned the distinction before between business travel and consumer travel and, and what have you. So if you're thinking about the reason why we entered our position in Southwest for this strategy, the company had a, a very consistently uh, high level of return on capital. Over time, return on capital is a very important metric for us in our strategy. And how are they able to do that? Their footprint is fairly unique. Their network is fairly unique in that uh, they largely fly out of their second-tier airport in a given market. So, for example, Houston, they fly out of Hobby. They don't fly out of Bush. In Chicago, up until recently, and I'll get into that, they flew out of Midway, not O'Hare. So a very difficult-to-replicate network that was underserved by the large network carriers, and they were able to create a very profitable niche. Serving these markets, largely consumer markets, largely leisure markets, at a very low cost. So you, you weren't going to get a, a luxury, a first-class experience on Southwest. You were going to get a very good value for your money. Alaska had a similar model in terms of return on capital, very high returns on capital for an airline, which is a very capital-intensive business. They have a hub in Seattle, uh, which they dominate, although that moat has eroded a little bit over time, but they are still fairly dominant out of that hub. And their footprint was really along the West Coast of the United States, based out of Seattle. In 2016, I want to say, they or thereabouts, they acquired another airline, Virgin America, which gave them additional exposure to California. Uh, they could serve that tech business traveler who was flying between Seattle and San Francisco, a higher-end clientele. They got access to a very attractive credit card program, which is a good source of profit for airlines. So Alaska had a different model than Southwest, but it, not, nevertheless, it, it was unique. So the pandemic comes along, and again, we ask ourselves, what's changed permanently, or at least for the foreseeable future? And our view was that Alaska, given its reliance on business travel and the future growth of the airline was reliant on growing the franchise between Northern California and Seattle, we thought that that had been impaired in part by the pandemic, and we could not foresee a scenario where they would earn an adequate return on capital, uh, which we require for our strategy. Now, you look at Southwest, they both sold off. Uh, all, all the airline stocks and travel-related stocks sold off quite a bit. They all required government aid and government guarantees and so forth. But Southwest went into the pandemic with no debt on its balance sheet. It, it had plane leases, which is, is debt, but no traditional balance sheet debt, whereas Alaska still had some leverage from the transaction that I mentioned. Southwest used the pandemic to reinvest in its business opportunistically. It used planes at a discount price. It bought slots at O'Hare, for example, which it did not have access to previously. So we held on to our Southwest. We sold our Alaska. And it ties back to what I said initially in that we tried to judge what has changed permanently and what has changed temporarily. And as we fast forward 18 months, we're seeing the consumer travel return more rapidly than business travel. Steve, you and I have been on a number of WebEx and Zoom calls. Perhaps that takes the place of traditional business travel going forward. We'll see. 
but it really is a judgment. And it's the analyst's judgment. It's the portfolio manager's judgment. And we judge that, at least in this instance, with these two airlines, that for the one, nothing had changed. For the other, something had changed. And that influenced our decision-making. So now let's move forward a bit in time. So that was sort of the thought process we were going through spring of 2020. Now we go through the summer into the fall. We get we start to get indications that, you know, we might get vaccines pretty soon. And and in fact, you know, the announcement of the successful tests started coming in the second week of November from Pfizer and then Moderna. And we began to hear during the fall, people began to discuss this notion of a quote reopening trade. And you know, it strikes struck me as a little odd in the sense that it people it gives the impression that there's kind of a binary on off switch here. You know, it's, oh, well, there's either either your position for for continued pandemic or your position for complete reopening, and there's no in-between. But, you know, reality is not binary like that, and the reality was much more fluid. So tell us, you know, what was the thought process during the fall when people were talking about, quote, reopening? Sure. So in, in our case, we never closed. <laughs> I think of stocks like Booking.com, the preeminent travel website. A name like Amadeus, which is the dominant IT provider for airlines and hotels globally. We love those businesses. We still love them because of their unique attributes, the level of return they can earn on their capital relative to their cost of capital, and very wide moats around their business. So in in the case of Booking and Amadeus, we never exited those names. I think in, in the case of Amadeus, we added to the position in spite of the stock being down, I think, 60 to 70%. Both of these companies were not profitable, but looking through the other side, we could see that when travel did return, their positions in their respective marketplaces had not been eroded. So we held on and we added selectively and there was never a, a reopening trade for us. We, we did the same things we always did. It's fair to say that some of the sectors that perhaps were, were underweight in, such as financials and, and maybe energy and, and some other sectors that are these traditional value, quote unquote, sectors, we are underweight those. And that certainly did not help our performance over that period of time. But because we had not reacted, because we held on to the two names I mentioned, to our restaurant names like Yum and Yum China, I think we were able to capture a piece of that quote-unquote reopening trade, having not done anything prior to that to prepare for such an event, which was largely transitory. I think growth has come back and is now outperforming value year-to-date. Our strategy skews toward the growth side. So I probably sound like a broken record here, but we stuck to our guns. We, we held firm. So there was never a big bang moment where it's, oh, well, we, we got to prepare for this reopening trade. We were already there by and large. Right. And, and of course, the quote reopening has proven to be very messy. You know, it's not, as I say, it was not binary. It's not like, oh, okay, pandemic just went away. You know, we, we thought we were out of the woods and, and then cases started going back up again, even with the vaccine. So it's never clear cut. And so, yeah, that's just a good example of the kind of uncertainty that portfolio managers always have to deal with. That uh, here, here's a case where people thought it was going to be clear cut. We, they thought we'd have this quote reopening, and in fact, it's been a very messy reopening because a lot of activity has come back, but not necessarily to pre-pandemic levels. And so, it, it's messy. Okay, you talked about the fact that you had to think about what changes were temporary and which changes were permanent in terms of what we already owned. And there's kind of a flip side to that, which is that, you know, we've seen changes in what's passing. We start in, in the Capri strategy. We start with a, the first step is a screen, which is based on ROIC and margins and a few other things. 
we've seen a, a number of names start passing the screen that obviously names we don't currently own because they hadn't been passing our screen for a long time. But we've seen because of the pandemic and the effects of the pandemic, we have seen some names start to pass the screen. But in most cases, we've rejected them because of this issue of believing that it's temporary and not permanent. And, and most, a lot of this has been in commodity related names. So talk about maybe some examples we've seen there of things that suddenly looked good on our metrics, but that we chose to avoid anyway. Sure. You mentioned miners. I mentioned shipping container manufacturers, the shipping companies themselves, all these companies, whether it's Rio Tinto or, or Norilsk Nickel or Maersk or, or any of the companies that are involved in these types of industries. I like to say that they migrate through our screen once a decade. Uh, and inevitably, you, you get a burst of inflation in commodity prices, whether it's in iron ore or, or coal or, or something of that sort. Or you might get a spike in shipping rates because of a, a temporary imbalance in shipping supply and demand. This is not what we're trying to capture with these strategies. Now, there is a trade to be made there. If you had correctly predicted that, those would have been spectacular trades for you. And I, we've had some shipping companies pass through our screen that are up 8 or 9x since the beginning of the pandemic because a lot of shipping capacity was temporarily taken offline because crews got sick and companies were closing borders. And consumer demand came back more rapidly than did shipping capacity. So shipping rates went through the roof. And uh, these companies are earning spectacular returns on capital. We don't think this is a permanent situation, at least well, for the, for the good of all of us. Uh, we hope it's not permanent because <laughs> we'll be paying a lot more for anything that we buy. You know, it would have been great to own a container ship during that time, but your ship is probably no different than the next guy's ship. And you don't really have any sustainable long-term competitive advantage other than maybe size. You can weather storms, pardon the pun, <laughs> better than, than other shipping companies. Yeah, in the case of miners, you have seen some spikes in some of the metals as China has increased their demand and it outstripped capacity for a period of time. But really, these do not lead to sustainably high returns on capital, which is what we're trying to find in our strategy. These are just sort of temporary changes which are not likely to persist. Okay, so let's let's move ahead again in time now. And as we go into 2021 and so the spring and summer of 2021, we you alluded to we did see some periods, particularly right after the announcements of the vaccines, and then again in I think it was around February of this year, there were periods where, you know, quote, value stocks. And it was really just because it was financials and energy doing well. That's what was driving the outperformance of value versus growth during that period. And people did begin to question the valuation on some of the, quote, growthier names, particularly in tech, healthcare, consumer discretionary. And at the same time, we began to see in the spring of this year a pickup because of the pandemic and the supply chain disruptions, et cetera. We began to see a pickup in inflation. And that has an impact on, on valuation because of the impact it has on discount rates, interest rates, and hence discount rates that people apply to future cash flows. So how have you, you know, thought about that in recent months? Yeah, so this may sound a little bit old-fashioned, Steve, but it, it's all about the discount rate and the cost of capital. You know, immediately after the pandemic hit, I think that the 10-year rate in the U.S., which is a proxy for the risk-free rate in our classic models, got down to 50 bips. It started to creep up through the rest of the year. But it really started to take off once the Pfizer data came out on November 6th of last year. The discount rate went up. I think it ended the year close to 1%. It got as high as 175 earlier this year on fears of inflation and thought that, well, we're going to have a spectacular period of growth. Now, both of those things are still likely to happen in that you know, we've had sort of a super uh, uh, above trend growth in the U.S. or certainly not a 5 or 6% growth economy, but we've had months and quarters where we've seen that post-pandemic. 
Inflation is, depending on how you measure it, up to 4 or 5%. The risk-free rate has come down from a peak of 175 to now, uh, as we sit here, around 130. So when we think about valuations, it really is what level of free cash flow does a company generate? How much can it reinvest? And what can it earn on the capital that it reinvests? Because that ultimately influences the growth, the growth in cash flows, and the long-term valuation of the company using the data we have today. So when that risk-free rate did start to go up, the equity risk premium went up. A lot of these higher multiple stocks, some of which we own, were hit. Their valuations came down, but they've certainly had a a renaissance as that risk-free rate has come down and people's future impression of of where the risk-free rate might go, that's come down. Inflation is still a concern, but that seems to have tapered a little bit, pardon that word. (laughs) So it really is all about the discount rate. As that discount rate spiked up, the longer duration equities were hit the hardest, some of which we own. And as that discount rate has come back down, these stocks have appreciated accordingly. So that's kind of how we're thinking about valuation and how we think about it going forward. We have to get the free cash flow right, what we think it can do this year and maybe next, what we think the company can reinvest, what it can earn on those reinvestments and what that spread is between that return and the company's cost of capital. That determines the valuation of the business. And we do, as well, take a look at what's embedded in the price. What do we try to back out? What is the current price telling us about future expectations of growth, reinvestment, ROIC? And we do use that as a sanity check, so to speak. Yes, you're right. It's a two-part exercise. It's predicting the future and and then moving out to the future and, and rewinding and seeing what the implication is in the interim. And that has to make sense. And if we think it makes sense and we think the, the company's competitive advantages are durable, then we will invest in the stock. And, and the flip side of that is also true. So let's uh, wrap up with one last question. Lessons learned. So it's been 18 months. You know, By and large, you would conclude that not uh, overreacting emotionally was, was a good thing. It's all about you know, deciding, what, as you've said a couple of times here, what's, what has changed temporarily and what has changed permanently, if anything. So what lessons uh, do you think we can take away from this experience of the last 18 months? So hopefully, I never want to be able to use this, these lessons I've learned in this particular situation again in, in my lifetime. So hopefully that this is a one and done as far as pandemics go. But I think the lesson to be learned here is that while we might not have a, a pandemic, we will have bear markets. We will have sharp drawdowns. And the quality franchises are the ones that will persevere because of their competitive advantages, because of their balance sheet because of their manager's skill in allocating capital, those companies will win. Those companies will outperform long-term over time. And in spite of short-term noise and short-term trading opportunities, we believe those principles will prevail. And that's the basis for our strategy. Okay. Well, my guest today has been David Sino, who's the lead portfolio manager on Epic's quality capital reinvestment strategies. David, thank you for joining me. Great to be here, Steve. Thank you. And uh, to our listeners, if you wouldn't mind doing us a favor, please leave us uh, a good rating or a, a review or comments on whatever platform you're getting this podcast from. And we will be back with another episode shortly. Thanks. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. 
The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.